Lord, we are um, humbled by the glory of what you have created in the gift of music and how it is lifted aloft to your throne in the hearts and voices of your people. What a great way to finish our preparation for your word to think upon what it means to truly worship. The greatest act of worship is to submit in love to you. So as we learn from your word, as we rejoice in all that you've taught us and all that you teach us by your spirit, make us submissive, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Take your Bibles, if you would, and look with me at Luke chapter 6. We are in the sixth chapter of Luke, and uh, I apologize for being out last week. I seem to have been allowed by the Lord to host an unwelcome guest in my life, physically. Uh, But uh, many of you prayed, and I'm so grateful for that. I was all ready to go, and uh, so I'm doubly ready to go today. And uh, it is a wonderful section of scripture now that we come to because it is the account in Luke's gospel where Jesus is going to make the the all-important selection of those who will be the foundation doctrinally of the church. And if you had a want ad for this particular job, it would be striking indeed. It might say something like this. Jesus is looking for a select group of men to be the first stewards of a global and timeless project, a project which involves the worldwide confrontation of moral decline and the steady spread of global redemption, one transformed life at a time, the required education, zero, the required experience, zero, The responsibilities might sound something like this, to learn and follow to the letter every word revealed and commanded by the executive leader, to further write down everything learned and oversee the distribution of it to others with the goal that it reach every corner of the globe, to personally proclaim the revelation night and day without regard to audience receptivity. To spend every hour of every day training others in all aspects of the work so that they are able to carry on the work in exactly the same way it was given by the leader. To teach the entire revelation to assemblies of followers and oversee the establishment of new assemblies and the training and appointment of new leaders to safeguard the work. More responsibility beyond those would be these, to call all followers to completely surrender to your appointed authority, to spend every ounce of time and energy to make certain that the ongoing work of each assembly will not become weak or go astray from any of the teachings that have been passed down, to stay at the work in the face of all hostility and or threats to one's life, to call attention to and confront all who oppose the teaching without partiality or fear of reprisals, to remain faithful until there's no more personal strength or energy to go further, and to be willing to be imprisoned and eventually killed by those who oppose the work, to be constantly encouraging all others in the work so that your life is a model of steadfastness and obedience to the leader, and... Finally, to be willing to sit in the place of authority and culpability for all the days determined by the leader. That's all God was asking. That's it. Just those things. Just 12 willing hearts. These were going to be men whose lives would never be the same. These were going to be men who were appointed by God to carry the torch of this new covenant purchased by Christ. These would be men who'd be the foundation of the church, as I said, and the doctrines would be built upon the work that they accomplished on behalf of the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. These would be men who would write scripture. They would testify to the world. They would spend and expend their souls for the sheep. 
They would ultimately then lay down their lives for the church unto death, and they would be men who would therefore be eternally noteworthy. And it would be the master himself who would gather the large core group of disciples and then select 12 from among those core disciples, that larger group. He would select 12 of them to be his master's men. And so what we have here in the text in Luke is a brief description of Jesus' approach to singling out the 12, and we have a list of their names. As I said, he would call this larger group of disciples together, and uh, he would choose from among them. Notice in verse 13 of chapter 6, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles, uh, chose. It's the word meaning to select out specifically, and then to name them as apostles is to assign to them a very specific name, which made the purpose for them very specific and clear. They were to be sent ones from the master himself. In Mark's parallel account, in Mark 3, verse 13, it says that Jesus summoned those whom he himself wanted. That's the larger group. And then it says in verse 14 of Mark 3 that he appointed the 12. And he uses that term that means he made 12 of them a specially appointed group. They are marked out. Everyone's going to see it. Everyone's going to know it. These are the ones he's marked out. Now, Luke jumps from the Sabbath controversies that we were studying. Uh, he jumps forward to this time just prior to the official appointment of the Twelve. And there have been a couple of things that took place after the Sabbath controversies and the Pharisees sort of Uh, ensuing rage to try to kill him or find a way to destroy him. We saw that last time. But then in Mark's gospel and in Matthew's gospel, Mark 3, Matthew 12, you have uh, Jesus then leaving those Sabbath controversies, and he's still heading down toward the surrounding area of the Sea of Galilee uh, along the coastline, and he's still healing huge multitudes of people. And he is withdrawing because of the Sabbath controversy. In fact, Matthew 12, 15 and following says that Jesus was aware that they were trying to put him to death. And for Jesus, he is sovereign and under the dependence of the Holy Spirit. And he clearly has the Father's plan in mind. And so to keep him from an early struggle over this, he'll go to Jerusalem when it's time. He'll put himself on the line when it's time. But before the time, he withdraws from that controversy And though people were following him and he was healing all of them, he was warning them, Matthew 12 says, not to tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Why? Because he he is managing and controlling the hostility from Jerusalem's center. And Isaiah the prophet is quoted by Jesus, or at least by Matthew, in Matthew 12, 17, when the prophet had said, In Isaiah, uh, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I'll put my spirit upon him. He shall proclaim, here it is, justice to the Gentiles, a battered reed he won't break and a smoldering wick he won't put out until he leads justice to victory. And his name, and in his name, rather, the Gentiles will hope. So there are Gentiles that God is saving. Jesus cannot go to Jerusalem and die until that number of Gentiles is brought in prior to his death on the cross. There's a plan. There's a purpose. There's a sovereign work. And Luke skips what happens there. He goes from the Sabbath controversies fast forward to this time when Jesus pulls away then in order to move forward in an official choice. Of the men. Now, you need to realize that sometimes we talk about the disciples being with Jesus for three years, but that's not true. Jesus had a three year ministry until his death from its beginning to its end, but it was really only about 18 months. Some would even suggest that the official choosing of the 12 happened with only a year left. I would suggest to you that it's probably best to see it as about a year and a half. 
where he officially chose them. They'd been walking with him. He'd been with them. So there was a lot of exposure. And as you know, there were interactions we've already seen in Luke's gospel. But this is the official appointing of the 12 out of the group as the master's official men to accomplish those responsibilities that I mentioned. And so for a couple of Sundays, I want us to look closely at what we learn from how Jesus selects the 12. There are some profound and wonderful truths to explore in this unfolding narrative, and there there are extremely practical takeaways for us that the Spirit of God intended through these few short verses from the pen of Luke. And as Jesus makes this this really what we might call a history-altering choice of these men. We're going to see how he went about it. And from that, I'd like to draw out six features of his choice, six features of his choice that are really literally recalibrators. They recalibrate our thinking in several key theological areas, and they reinvigorate the heart of the believer. They reinvigorate our faith in the sovereignty of God. And we will find new encouragement to press on in the work to which God has called each of us individually as we look at these features of the choice of Christ for his men, the way he went about it. I'll just give you the six, and then we'll probably cover two today, and we'll cover the four the next time. First of all, it was a dependent choice. It was an utterly dependent choice. Second, it was a grave choice. I like the word grave because it speaks of the weightiness of the choice, the seriousness of this choice. This choice mattered for all eternity. So it was a dependent choice, a grave choice. Number three, a sovereign choice. Number four, it is a replicating choice. It had long-term practical implications and a replicating purpose behind it. It is a replicating choice. Fifthly, it's an unlikely choice, (laughs) an unlikely choice, and we're going to take a look briefly at whom he chose in the list given to us. And lastly, it was a scandalous choice, a scandalous choice. Why? Because in the choice of the twelve, he chose his own betrayer. A dependent choice, a grave choice, a sovereign choice, a replicating choice, an unlikely choice, and a scandalous choice. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 12, Luke 6. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, let's look at this first feature, a dependent choice. The first feature of the way Jesus went about this choice is absolutely remarkable because it is a choice that is made against the backdrop of Jesus' own personal drive to bring himself under the sovereign work of his heavenly Father. Verse 12, it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. And you remember that we've learned throughout this gospel so far that that Jesus fully depended upon his Father and fully depended on the power of his Spirit, even though he is fully God. He is God incarnate, God in human flesh. And yet in his incarnation that we even celebrate this month, he left the glories of heaven and took on humanity. He added humanity to who he was, and it didn't hinder the deity of Christ in any way or erase it, but It was a veil behind which his deity stood. He took on humanity so that he is both fully God and fully man. And in his incarnation, though he's equal with God in essence, 
Listen, his humanity was willingly brought under the power and the controlling influence of his spirit. And you remember back in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. And after his temptation, Luke 4, verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. We've already seen that Jesus was anointed with the Spirit, and the Spirit of God remained upon him. And so the Son of God, who's fully human, lived his earthly ministry under the influence of the third member of the Trinity. And so Luke tells us that Jesus' ministry began with the full power of the Holy Spirit influencing him and controlling him. He's fully empowered by God. He's fully equipped to accomplish what he's come to do. The Spirit's power then will be manifested and on display in everything that he does in his life and work all the way to his death, all the way to his resurrection, and all the way to his exaltation. In fact, later, when Peter was preaching in Caesarea, Luke records in Acts 10, verse 38, that Peter said this, You know Jesus. You know of him. How God had anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He yielded to the Spirit in his life. We saw that in his temptation. He yielded to the Spirit's will. The Spirit led him around the wilderness to be tempted. The Spirit led him there, led him out, led him the whole time he was there. So this means that in his humanity, he would, just like we do in our Christian life, he would be submitting himself in his human nature to the Spirit's grace and power through the infirmities of human life and especially when facing hostility and evil. By the way, just as a theological footnote, this is precisely what vindicates him in the end. This is what vindicates the Son of Man as the ultimate victor and great high priest. Because in his genuine humanness, in his genuine taking on of humanity like us, he faced what we face at a level we will never face it, and he faced it depending upon his heavenly Father depending upon the Spirit of God, submitting His will fully to His Father. That means that every time He spoke, He he spoke the wisdom of the Spirit of God as He depended upon that wisdom in His mind, in His human mind. Every time He spoke with enemies and confounded them with truth, He was depending with His mind and His heart by faith upon the Spirit of truth. Each time Jesus Christ experienced the limitations and infirmities of humanity itself and the weaknesses of human frailty, he would trust the Holy Spirit to strengthen him. He did that on our behalf. It's a bit of a mystery. So back in Luke 6, what you see now is the expression of his dependence in making this choice. He doesn't just simply say, as he looks at the crowds, I'll take you, and I'll take you, and I think you. And Yeah, he could, and certainly God would make whatever he wanted to make out of human beings, and we'll see in the unlikely choice of these men that that's precisely what God purposes to do. But every name... Jesus wanted every name to be aligned with the purposes of his heavenly Father. Why? Because it demonstrates holiness. It demonstrates righteousness. It demonstrates humility. It demonstrates dependence. It demonstrates faith. And so in Jesus' humanity, he operates exactly as we're supposed to operate when we come to God, when we consider our life, when we consider our purpose, what we're here for, what we're here to do. This is such a great and wonderful feature of the way Jesus went about making this choice. And notice he planned for it. In those days or at this time, he went off to pray. Listen, Jesus knew, I've got a choice to make in the wisdom of the Father. I've got to get away and plan some time for this kind of critical thing. Such an intimate look into the Savior Got to get away from the crowds and the distractions. Don't you have to do that sometimes? You got to get away from the crowds and distractions. And in the dependent 
planning for prayer, he actually took time, set it aside. We see this all over the Gospels. Matthew 14, 23, he'd sent the multitudes away. He went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. He needed time to become aligned with his heavenly father. Mark 1.35, in the early morning, and while it was still dark, he arose and went out and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. Lonely place is just a reference to he got away from all the things that normal human beings want in terms of comfort and distraction. He got himself where he could concentrate on the needs. Luke 9.18, it came about while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and they began to question him. And he questioned them. Eight days later, Luke 9.28 It came about that he took along Peter and John and James and he went up to the mountain to pray. And of course, you know that just before his death, walking along with his disciples, he lifts up his hands in that priestly gesture. And in John 17, it is recorded that he prayed on behalf of his apostles, his disciples in front of him. And he prayed out loud that they might hear it. And he prayed for them and everyone who is redeemed by their testimony. In Gethsemane, in the hours of his greatest agony, Mark 14 records that he prayed. Matthew 26 records that he prayed on several occasions. Even when his disciples couldn't keep their eyes open and they couldn't even pray for him for a single hour of an entire night, Jesus went and in the agony of that moment, he took this prospect of bearing guilt that was foreign to him and to his innocent heart. And he took it before God in prayer. This was his planned habit. I need to be dependent. Look, if you want a motivation for prayer, just to practically illustrate how this might work in your life, not to overly moralize, but just to think about it illustratively, if you want a motivation for prayer, remember this, if you do not plan to be before God and taking your needs before him, it will be that your heart will become proud. You will slip into pride in your life. Why? Prayer is the most humbling aspect of our obedience. You never see God tangibly. It removes all of your senses from the picture. You don't get to rely on anything subjective. It is raw, pure faith in the moment, and it is humble dependence. And that's what you see here. Now, I know what sometimes comes to your mind. You say, well, Man, if Jesus is God, he knows the Father's will, and he's that in tune with it, if he knows the sovereign purposes of God, why pray? Why pray? I mean, if God is sovereign over it, why pray? Well, there are many reasons all through Scripture, but I'll give you two primary reasons why we pray. First of all, we are commanded to pray. So obviously God, in his infinite wisdom, wants his people regularly in everything, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. By prayer and petition, every variety of prayer, every expression we can offer, by prayer and petition in everything, in every circumstance, every situation, every need, every burden, in all those things, and with thanksgiving, let your prayers, your requests be made known to God. We're commanded to pray. Be anxious for nothing, but pray. Be anxious for nothing, but pray. Sometimes we're filled with anxiety. And the first word our friends and loved ones ought to say to us, are you praying about this? That's confrontive. You're all anxious. Have you prayed? Uh, actually, no. I, I, what are you doing? Be anxious for nothing but by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving in everything. That's the first reason we ought to pray. Secondly, and maybe more to the heart of the the theological underpinnings of it, God ordains that our prayers, the prayers of his people, are the means for working out his ultimate will. Can you believe that? Our prayers are established in the sovereignty of God as the means by which God carries out his ultimate purposes. James 5.16, here it is in just one verse. The effectual, fervent prayers of a righteous man accomplish much. Wow. 
There it is. Why? If God's already going to do what he's going to do, why pray? Because he's commanded it. But why pray? Because when you pray, it is an expression of your alignment with the truth that God has established your prayers as the effectual means by which he accomplishes these things. You say, well, isn't he going to do it anyway? Listen, you can't ask it that way. That's strange. Isn't he going to do it anyway? No, he's not going to do it anyway. He wants to do it through your prayers. You mean, if I don't pray, he won't accomplish his ultimate will. You know what? If you don't pray, he'll accomplish his ultimate will through the prayers of other people and chasing you for your disobedience. That's what he'll do. Prayer is to be understood from the two vantage points. From the divine perspective, God works in us, willing and working for his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. From the divine perspective, he is working out his workmanship. He's completing the workmanship, Ephesians 2.10. But from the human perspective, man is praying, man is pleading, man is petitioning. And the means by which God completes his workmanship are the prayers of his people. That's part of his ordained means. Now, that's not a surprise to us because that is all over the scriptures in the tension between the sovereign purposes of God and his carrying out of his ultimate will and our place in that. How he uses in his sovereignty the the choices of his people, the work of his people, the labors and passions and seasons of his people. So wonderfully mysterious and yet richly taught in scripture. It is the divine work that's ultimately being carried out, Ephesians 1.11. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. But how does he work it out? He works it out by the prayers and labors and service and, and obedience of his people. That's why he gives us all those warnings in Scripture. Stay with it. Stay faithful. Stay encouraged. Pray. Obey. Learn. Follow. Submit. You see that tension even in the gospel, don't you? Look, God knows whom he's going to save. God knows whom he's rescuing. He knows the circumstances by which he's bringing the gospel to those whom he's rescuing. And yet, what does it say in Romans 10, 20? It is the preaching of the gospel. How will they come to Christ without a preacher? Isn't that interesting? Because we could say the same thing about that issue. Well, God's going to save them even if they don't have a preacher. Not true. But if it's not you that goes, it's someone else that's going to go because God has his faithful people who are preaching through which he is then doing his ultimate will. And we could say it the same way. God is having and growing his faithful people who are praying. And if you're not praying and getting involved and getting aligned with the purposes of God, then he will bring that about in your life through chastening and love. That's why the Son of Man prayed. He planned it knowing fully that the 12 were already in the Father's heart. But he wanted the purest mind, the purest spirit-led affections, the purest prayers aligning his will with the Father so that when he stood up the next morning and he brought the group together and he made the selection, it was with absolute confidence that his heart was pure, his faith sincere, and his life yielded. That's what it means when Jesus tells the disciples, whatever you ask in, the, in my name, the Father will give to you. He doesn't mean, hey, ask away, live it up. We know that's not true because in James chapter 4, if you pray to God for something and you want to spend it on yourself, you're not going to get it. But if you come to God and you align your will and your life and your heart and your affections with the purposes of God, as you see it in his word, then you know the next day when you get up and you walk forward, your heart is pure, you know God is going to use you mightily to answer that prayer. It may turn out completely shaped and nuanced in a way you had no idea he would answer. In a time frame you didn't expect. But the effectual fervent prayer of your heart avails much. Notice also that Jesus got alone and he went to the mountain to pray. As I said, he's undistracted, but more importantly, he's persistent. (laughs) He's persistent. He's undistracted in his prayer, but more importantly, he is persistent. That's what he wants. He wants to get stuff aside so that he can be persistent. And so he goes away in order to plead. 
consistently. And you know how it is in prayer. We are such short prayers. We are such a distracted culture and undisciplined in these things. But when you meet somebody who is a disciplined prayer warrior for the things of God, what you notice about them is the varying ways they express petitions to God. Why? Because of practice. They've been before the throne on those issues multiple times. It's not about eloquent wording. It's about the way the Spirit of God shapes your thinking as you pray over time. He shapes your thinking. Luke 18, Jesus tells that parable about persistent prayer, you remember. And it isn't so much that Jesus is wanting to say, badger God. You got to badger him like the pagans badger their gods. No. In the consistent, persistent prayer, you get shaped. You mature. Your selfishness gets dealt with. Your distracted and straying thoughts get dealt with. Your burdens become more refined. Your thinking sharp. Your affections more biblically inclined. That's what Jesus was doing. And it turned this dependent choice into that second thing, a grave choice. A grave choice. Notice He spent the whole night in prayer to God. You know what that intends? That intends to teach us that Jesus Christ worships when he prays. He spent the whole night in communion. Communion is worship. Intimate communion with God is worship. You know what happens in worship? It's what I said earlier. The greatest expression of it is submission of your heart. As Jesus is coming to a planned time of dependence, his heart is worked on. His humanity is worked on. His human will is aligned with the purposes of his deity and the alignment of his Father's great and grand plan. This is a time for worship and petition. And more importantly, it's a time for faith and submissiveness. Notice he spent the whole night in prayer to God. To God. This is submission. You can't mess up this choice. That's on his mind. I don't want to mess up this choice with some human uh, blindness. You say he's God. He can't be blind. But listen, that was the whole point of these various tests of Jesus' life. And it's the whole reason it's written for us. It could have said, Jesus chose 12. But it doesn't say that. It says he went to worship and submit so that when he woke up the next day and made the choice, it would be the divine choice. What does that do for us? It means that Jesus is submissive to his Father in everything. If he wasn't, he couldn't go to the cross. You understand that? If any point along the way Jesus messes up and inserts his human comfort or his lack of trust, or his unwillingness to align himself with his Father's will, even in the choice of the twelve, then he cannot go to the cross for sinners because he would not be found holy. And it's written here so that we would know that when Jesus had a grave decision, the most grave decision, who to hand the work to, whom the Father wanted to be glorified through as the foundation of his people doctrinally. This was so grave that he wanted to worship and believe and submit to his God. What an example. What a comfort (laughs) that he did this. He spent the whole night, beloved, any uh, volunteers on telling us the last time he spent the whole night? Say, oh, but he was God. Listen, he was human. And by the way, he just finished walking along the Sea of Galilee, exhausted from all of the crowd and the healing. He hasn't had a break in 18 months. He hasn't had a break. Temptation, hostility, clamoring for healing. Complaints, unthankful people, gospel ministry, teaching doctrine, pulling disciples in, sending other disciples away, walking, barely eating sometimes. 
And he didn't take a nap before he went to pray all night. He pulled an all-nighter because the choice was up to him the next day. Hebrews chapter 5, look at it real quick, verse 7. Just as we think about this wonderful reality. Hebrews 5. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications, look at this, with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. That's interesting. With loud crying and tears, he offered up prayers in the days of his flesh. Not just, not just all the days of his flesh, as we see happening already in Luke's, minis, Luke's gospel, but all the way to the end and the Garden of Gethsemane with loud crying and petition that God was able to save him from death. And this isn't merely physical death, of course. He was praying in the garden, that if there was some other way to be rescued from having foreign guilt crush his innocent little heart, that that could be done some other way, if possible. And when the Father brought it down upon him and realigned those purposes, Jesus' human will aligned perfectly. Not my will, but yours be done. And he was heard because of his piety. Heard what? In, in what sense? Is the Father going to save him from that? No. You know what the Father is saving him from here? From running from it. That's what the Father is saving him from. From running in his humanity away from the cross. He came to the Father and says, there's some other way. And the Father said, no, there isn't any way. And Jesus had to be strengthened right then and there to align his will. And he said, not my will, but yours be done. What the Father saved him from was to run in his humanity away from the prospect of dying for sinners. His humanity was perfect. His humanity was innocent. Of course he was holy and and righteous and undefiled, but in his humanity he had never committed a sin. And he was about to bear our sins in his body, and he asked the Father, is there some other way? And the Father said, no. And so he said, it, not my will. And he aligned through petition and prayer. And the Father saved him from the absence of redemption, from running from the work of redemption, and strengthened him to accomplish the task. He was heard because of his request. His request was pure. Verse 8, and although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. There it is. He gradually brought the obedience of a righteous heart to his father to align it. And having been made complete, he then became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. The source of eternal salvation. Beloved, this is what our Savior has done for us. And this is why Luke illustrates it. I mean, don't pass over or gloss over what happened here. Jesus, exhausted from ministry days and hours, he pulls himself away during this particular time in his ministry, probably about 18 months or more into it. He pulls himself away to spend the whole night in worship and faith and submission and prayers and supplication and petition. And it is to be undistracted and it is going to be persistent. And even in that hour, there was the temptation to perhaps get a little sleep, rest a little, The human temptation, the temptation by Satan to forego this, forestall it. Don't choose them. Listen, Satan knows who's coming. He knows these 12 men are going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, minus the one and then adding Matthias later. These men are going to turn 
the world and its moral decline upside down with the gospel. And know, know this, Satan knows his time is short, Revelation 12 says. And so even then, when Jesus went alone to pray, you know he was bombarded. Sleep a little, won't you? Come on. The Father is sovereign. He'll make the choice. The guys are coming. You know, if God is so sovereign, why must you burden yourself all night with such a thing? In fact, get on some shifts with some of this crowd that follows you around and eats out of your hand of the spiritual blessing. Get a team going, fella. And then maybe the temptation came even more grossly and sinister. Look, if redemption's gonna be accomplished, then just let it happen on its own. Why must you suffer? Why must you be the one who suffers? And so, this is a marvelous expression of worship and submission. Why? Because the choice is so rich, so eternal, so long-term, so profound. And listen, beloved, it's, it's simple now to see why when the Lord calls us to pray, simple now, it should be easy now to be charged and convicted and encouraged and uplifted and challenged in our own hearts. Submitting to God requires dependence and worship. Obedience to God demands time with God. And not just quiet, undistracted prayer, but all varieties of prayer. When you're thinking, when you're driving, when you're being bombarded, when you're being tempted, when you're in the routines of life as Jesus was throughout the day, there's no reason to become a monk. This isn't mountainside cave dwelling. This is planned dependence and humble submission. That's what it is. I remember taking a seminary class on prayer. I think I've told our congregation this before. Our professor was a well-known, renowned soldier in prayer. First day of class, I'm a pastor already. Man, I was the senior associate pastor at the church. And he assigned us to pray Um, every day uh, for an hour and then report at the end of the week. Thought, I got this. Got four kids, lots to pray about. You know, my wife, she could certainly hand me her prayer request for me. And uh, (laughs) I need to pray for my life and marriage and burdens of ministry, and then there are the unsaved people and the counseling. I mean, this is, this is, I got this. I remember just not even alarmed. And uh, at the end of each day, you're to write down what you prayed for for an hour. My first day, I think I had seven minutes. That's humiliating. So I started in my mind working out the math. Well, if I, you know, kind of add up the little moments throughout the day, kind of collect them. I noticed that some of my fellow students were doing the same thing. They were, you know, we asked the professor, can we, you know, like add the whole day? No, just one straight hour of prayer every day. Day two, I think I went 11 minutes. Day three, as my list is getting longer, including my prayerlessness on the list, (laughs) I'm extending maybe a minute or two. My first week, I almost quit seminary. Let's quit the ministry. It's just, it's just folly. Look, look at me. What, what am I thinking? What, what am I doing? But what it taught me through the semester was that prayer is not a routine to be practiced without the heart that resonates with its purpose. 
the purposes are outlined here in the life of our Lord. And, and you say, but this was a monumental decision. Well, isn't every act of obedience a monumental, very grave choice? And so when we say, you know, we need to pray, what we're talking about is the heart behind it. There must be this sense that there's a dependence practiced in prayer that we plan to, to make happen in our life. We've got to plan it, as Jesus did, to get away and to be persistent and to, at times, uh, think about a list of petitions as Paul did systematically, and then to take it before God in an act of worship. Your prayers might be sung at times. They might be spoken at times. They might be silent at times. They might be screaming and crying out loud at times. They might be tearful. They might be quite common. But nonetheless, it is at times not the clock that is our concern. It's the aligning of our will with a pure and sincere faith. That's what it is. And the more we pray, the more we submit. And that's what the Lord illustrates here. This is an eternal decision. This is critical. And if the God-man in his humanness knew the urgency of it, how wonderfully rich that he did that because it shows us how much he loved us, how much he wanted to go to the cross for us, how much he didn't want any of his human, human frailty to get in the way of redeeming us. There's just great comfort in that. Lord, you worked that hard? Yes, this isn't about a choice of 12 men ultimately. It's about the ratification of a new covenant in the gospel. It's about the purity of Christ in his humanity. It's about aligning his will with the sovereignty and purposes of his father. And in that, he shows us what he did for us so that we might walk after it. How precious a savior do we have who would depend so gravely on a decision like this? You say, well, wasn't the Father sovereign? Yeah, that's the third. We don't have time for it. I'll cover it next time. But it was a sovereign choice. No question about it. Notice, it says here, and when the day came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them. He chose 12 of them. In John 15, when he was in the upper room with his disciples and he'd finished washing their feet, Judas was still there. In the room. And Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And he said, And yet one of you is a devil. One of you is a deceiver. One of you is a destroyer, a betrayer. It says it even here in Luke's account Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. What a comfort it must have been to those men who'd already sort of marched to Jerusalem with him and there they are at the final meal and Jesus is talking about his death and do this in remembrance. He's got the whole thing going on and he says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Verse 19 of John 15, he says, I chose you because I'm gonna send you. What a comfort that must have been. It was a sovereign choice. Luke says he distinguished them as apostles. He chose them and he named them as apostles. In other words, their name would now represent what their task ahead of them was in the sovereign purposes of God. Ambassadors sent ones. Not those who can fall off the track, not those who can decide to do it or not, not those who are mere uh, uh, prongs in an otherwise uh, list of names where everyone's equal. No, 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 no. These are the men who would start this process and they are the sent ones who would then oversee it. It would have to be a sovereign choice because if you saw the job description and it was you in the room, you'd run. You would run if you had any sense of its implication. So mind-boggling that James and John took their mom and brought her to Jesus and said, hey, ask him if we can sit on your right and your left. It's just mind-boggling the silly immaturity and gross pride of such a thing. If you really thought through the implications of the cup, you wouldn't ask such a question. And then Jesus said, it's not for 
us to know who, who will, in the purposes of God, sit in such places. It's a sovereign choice. You don't ask for things like that. You take up the mantle Christ has given you just like they take up the mantle. Why? Because it's God's sovereign purpose that you do so. And you are sent. And listen, down through the ages, they were sent and they passed that mantle to you and you have been sent. This is not an option. If you're a Christian, you have a place in that sovereign choice. We're not the twelve but we've been subsequently sent by Christ through their testimony and witness. How humbling that the Lord would do that for us. And so we'll look at the sovereign choice that it is next time. And then those final aspects of this wonderful list of names. The unlikely, even the scandalous, And yet a gospel-driven choice. He wanted to spend time with them. He wanted to teach them and pass the gospel to them. The Lord Jesus Christ did this for us. How precious. Pray with me. Lord, what a crushing blow to our pride and distractedness and small-minded culture. You will make us pray. You will bring us to prayer. You will encourage prayer, worship, and submission and petition. Thank you for those among us who've learned this and who've taught us much. Thank you for teaching us from your word, even the practical lessons from the example of our Lord in bringing his humanity under your purposes, O God. Thank you that it becomes for us such an encouragement that Jesus didn't run from the task, nor did the twelve save the betrayer. And they, in your strength and power, aligned their will, and we are saved because of it. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for going to the mountain. Thank you for going alone. Thank you for praying all night. Thank you for aligning yourself with your holy purposes and for doing that for your people and not running from the cup. We worship you because of it. If somebody here today doesn't know you, then this sermon is for them. This text is for them. Lord, penetrate their heart with the gospel of saving grace in Christ. A work on the cross that satisfies your wrath and covers the sinner for all eternity in forgiveness and compassion. Call them to repentance and faith, to turn from their old life and self-worship, and to turn only to you by faith alone. And we boldly ask for lavish grace in that proclamation. For the sake of your honor and glory, we pray it. Amen.